if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 29 through 34 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. And if you do not have a Bible with you, you can turn to page 904 in one of the Pew Bibles there. Page 904 in the Pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible, then please take that Pew Bible, and that's our gift to you today. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. That's just important. So take it and use it and benefit from it. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34, page 904 in the Pew Bible. Compromise has consequences. Compromise has its uh, consequences. The Corinthian church is discovering this fact. Fearful of looking foolish in the eyes of their pagan peers, some in this church at Corinth has has compromised on the doctrine of the resurrection. Such doctrinal compromise affected many other aspects of the church. How they related to one another, how... uh, It affected their their morality. It affected so many things. I mean, as we've been looking at this letter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we've seen there's problems in the church. There's sin problems. There's the problem of division within the church. And a lot of this, as we get down to the doctrine of the resurrection, a lot of this is coming out of Compromised doctrine. We see the same thing happening in the church today. The church growth movement started back in the mid-60s. Now, certainly, church growth is a good idea. Uh, We're interested in church growth. We want to see people come to faith in Christ and enter into the kingdom of Christ and, and be in the church. But the church growth movement was a movement that focused on sociological research to develop strategies to get people into the church. In other words, churches developed a a kind of whatever-works mentality to just get people in the pews, just to to have numeric growth. That was the main concern. If we can cause the the churches to grow, if we can have a megachurch, right? The bigger our church is, the better we're doing. But with that whole idea, with that strategy, focusing on whatever works to get people in the pews, came this idea that doctrine divides. Our doctrine is just boring, right? People outside the church, they're not interested in deep doctrine. So what we need in the pulpit is a weak doctrine. We need a watered-down sermon so that people are more likely to come in and stick around for a while. But let me tell you, watered-down doctrine produces watered-down Christians. And what we've seen in the church in our age is the absolute effect of watered-down pulpits and watered-down preaching. The church has put doctrine on the back burner in order to look good to the world by growing in numbers 
instead of focusing on what God has called us to do and grow in our relationship to Jesus Christ, to grow in our maturity of, of Christ. And we've seen that come to fruition even in the SBC. The SBC, the Southern Baptist Convic Convention, in fact, has just cut fellowship with four more churches. Just, this, just recently. Two because of their support of homosexuality and two others for employing convicted sex offenders. According to biblical doctrine, there are certain things that disqualify a man from the ministry and sexual offenses that uh, bring about convictions are in amongst those yet there are many churches that find that no big deal you see here's the thing when you compromise biblical doctrine when biblical doctrine is no big deal then lying is no big deal cheating is no big deal Adultery is no big deal. Homosexuality is no big deal. With doctrine goes morality. And we see Paul getting to this very point in today's passage. He, he points out this idea in this passage that we're looking at today. Now as we've been looking at chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been giving a defense for the doctrine of the resurrection. First, he set out five evidences of the resurrection of Jesus. Then he gave two devastating consequences for no resurrection. Then, as we saw last week, he showed us three glorious results of the resurrection. And now he's about to conclude his defense of the resurrection by giving us three motives for upholding the resurrection three motives for upholding the doctrine of the resurrection. And, and quite frankly, Paul is dealing with a specific issue about the doctrine of the resurrection, but we could also put other biblical doctrines here as well. He's talking about uh, the doctrine of resurrection specifically, but hey, doctrine, other doctrines affect the church as well. So when we, we're talking about the doctrine of resurrection specifically, we can think of doctrine, biblical doctrine, in general and so today what we find out is that bad doctrine ruins churches bad doctrine ruins the church you want to ruin the church let's water down the gospel water down doctrine biblical doctrine bad doctrine ruins the church we don't want that so if you found your place there in 1 Corinthians 15, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. Well, as we look at our text today and we look at the uh, reasons for upholding the doctrine of the resurrection, the first motive here for upholding the doctrine of the resurrection is for the salvation of sinners. We want to uphold the doctrine of the resurrection for the salvation of sinners. We see this in this first little, little uh, verse here, and this is going to take some explaining. This verse here, verse 29, is, is one of the most difficult passages in 1 Corinthians and one of the most questioned verses in all of Scripture. Paul here is talking about being baptized on behalf of or for, according to your translation, the dead. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Now, we need to understand a few things. We've got to understand what Paul is saying in this verse. We've got to understand what he's talking about when he says baptism, being baptized. We have to understand this little preposition here, which and the ESV is translated on behalf of. In other translations, it's for. It's the Greek word huper, which can mean a, mean a number of things. It's all according to context. And then we have to uh, understand and determine what Paul means by the dead. So those three little things, we, we've got to kind of define those three things for us to really understand and grasp what Paul is saying. Now, some would take that pair to mean for the dead, and we see this in the NIV and King James and other ones, but it's translated baptized for the dead. Uh, now, if, if this is the case, the meaning is uh, vicarious baptism. In other words, these are, are Christians who are being baptized for someone else. Now, if we understand that, now obviously they would have to be, being, be getting baptized for Christians. So the idea here would be that if this is a vicarious baptizing, they're getting baptized for someone who has already died, then the idea is that there must have been some loved one who came to faith and before they could be baptized, they died. So when we think about a, a deathbed confession, a deathbed conversion, perhaps. Someone came to faith in Christ, and now a loved one wants to stand in their place and be baptized for them because they were not able to be baptized for, before they, they died. If it was just in the baptism of hoping that person would be saved in the afterlife, well, that would be uh, completely heretical. And Paul would defend against that kind of idea. So if that is what Paul is talking about, if he's talking about vicarious baptism, people being baptized in the place of someone else, then it must be Christians who came to faith 
and die before they were being uh, able to be baptized. Paul here doesn't make a defense against or for it. He's just kind of stating a, a practice in the church. Now, I don't think that's what he's talking about. That actually is the most popular view. That's the most popular view. Most, most commentators, most scholars would, would go with this kind of vicarious baptism. And they would say that, well, it was just a practice and Paul's not condoning it. He's just kind of using it in his argument. Well, I think if it was that, then Paul would have to say a little bit more about that. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I really don't, and, and history backs this up. There's no other record of, of anywhere else in history of Christians being baptized on behalf of or for their dead loved ones, for other Christians. It's never been recorded. The only time it has been recorded is in some heretical movements who have popped up, and the early church fathers defended against such practice. So I, I don't think that's it. Contrary to popular belief, Right? I, I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. I think when we, we look at this, if we really want to understand what Paul is talking about, being baptized for the dead or on behalf of the dead, we really have to understand, first of all, who he's talking about when he says the dead. What's he talking about? Who is, who is his referent there? Who is he referring to when he says, on behalf of the dead. Who's the dead? And I really think to understand that, we need to look at the complete context. He's not talking about just dead in general. He's talking about what he's been talking about all throughout chapter 15. When we look at the whole context of chapter 15, as Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead, he's talking about the resurrection of Christian dead, isn't he? Go back to verse 12 when he first kind of refers to the dead. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, and you could say dead in Christ, right? It would fit right in. If there's no uh, resurrection of the dead in Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. Continuing on down there a little bit. Now, because we testify about God that, the, that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead, dead in Christ, are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been right? So all throughout this, he's, he's referring to the dead who are expected to be resurrected. It's those who have the hope of resurrection. He's not just talking about the dead in general. Anybody and everybody who's dead. He's talking about the dead who have a hope of resurrection. So when we understand that, now we go back and look at that and, and think about, all right, he's talking about the dead in Christ. And we look at that word huper, right? That, that preposition, what preposition best fits there? What fits in this context? I don't really think it's for. I, I think it's more because of or on account of. People are being baptized on account of, because of, the dead who are to be raised in Christ. In other words, he's looking to those who are, are coming to faith, 
They're coming to faith because of the hope that we have of a future resurrection in Christ. And that fits the context, doesn't it? That's what he's been talking about all along. Why are people being baptized because of dead Christians? Why are people being baptized because of our hope of being resurrected? That's what he's getting at. That's what he's pointing to. That's what he, I think he's saying here in this text. And when we think about that, we, we understand that baptism is, is, is it's part of, right? It's part of that, we're going to talk about this more in a second, but it's part of sal- that salvation experience, showing us what we are in Christ. And so he's saying, why are you baptizing people? Because of our hope of resurrection, if the resurrection is not true. If there's no resurrection, then why are you baptizing? Why are you immersing people in Christ if there is no resurrection? Roy Simpa, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but Roy Simpa and Brian Rosner offer this paraphrase, which I think hits it right on. If there is no resurrection, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized because of what they have heard about how our dead will be raised? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people undergoing baptism on account of them? You see, that fits the context of of our, our chapter. And that fits what the rest of Scripture tells us. Why are you worried about evangelism? Why are you worried about bringing people to faith in Christ? Why are you worried about baptizing them if there is no resurrection? That's foolishness. So people were being baptized on account of, because of the dead. And we need to understand this as, as we, he's talking about baptizing people, being baptized. We need to understand, too, that baptism is an important part of the salvation experience. Now, we need to understand here that people are not saved by baptism. You're not saved by by being baptized. Water baptism does not save you. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. In fact, Paul is is quite clear. The rest of Scripture is quite clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's it. Water baptism does not save you, yet... The baptism experience or or being baptized is a fundamental part of the whole salvation experience because it's in our baptism that we make that public proclamation, that first public proclamation of what we are in Christ, of our unity in Christ. And it's the first step of obedience to Christ. Baptism, we understand, is a visual symbol, a physical, visible symbol of an inside reality. What we see in baptism outwardly, right? We see it outwardly, we see it physically, but that is representative of what takes place in our hearts when we are converted, isn't it? 
Last week we had baptisms and two baptisms and Parker and Blaine were baptized. And as we baptized them, it represented, they weren't saved in that act, but it represented what took place in them when they came to faith in Christ. So, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, united with Christ in his death and resurrected to new life in him. I always say that because I want you to get the picture, right? That's what's taking place. That is a proclamation of Blaine and, and Parker when they go down. It's, it's symbolic of their unity with Christ in his death and raised to a new life in Christ. That's what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're immersed, we're baptized in Christ. That's the saving act. Water baptism is something that takes, later, takes place later where we pronounce to the world, announce to the world that, that union that took place in our hearts. And so when we understand it that way, we, we see Paul is not just referring, I don't think, He's not just referring to water baptism in this text. He's not just saying, why are people being baptized in water because of the dead? He's saying, why are people being immersed into Christ because of the hope of what we have in the resurrection? And he uses this kind of language elsewhere in Scripture as well. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. That is, we were buried with Christ by baptism, by immersion into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In that text, in Romans 6, 4, Paul is not just talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized, being immersed, right? The, the Greek word baptizo literally means being immersed. He's talking about being immersed in Christ. He's talking about the real thing that takes place in our hearts when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are being immersed in Christ. We are being united with Christ in death knowing that he died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place. We're united with him in his death as he died in our place, and we are united with him in his resurrection as the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts and moves into our lives and begins to work in us and give us, he begins in us that resurrected life already. Already in this life, we're experiencing the resurrecting life as the Holy Spirit works to change us and transform us in Christ. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we are immersed in Christ. But the whole point of this text in 1 Corinthians, what's the point? If the dead aren't raised, then what's the point in all that? What, what's the point of evangelism? What's the point of, of baptism? What's the point of all of this if the dead are not raised? What's the point? There is no point. There is no point. If there's no hope of a, a resurrection, if there's no future hope, 
of eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, then evangelism is useless. You see, if we, we set aside the doctrine of the resurrection, then we no longer, we're no longer motivated to go preach Christ to, to the lost, are we? Why? Why should we? Why change their lives? If there's no future hope, why evangelize? Why? It's useless. As Paul said earlier, if, there's, if in this life only we have hope, if we have no resurrection hope, then we, have, uh, we as Christians are most to be pitied. Because we're sacrificing, we're living for hopelessness. There's no use of evangelism. There's no use uh, of sharing the gospel if there is no resurrection. But the resurrection gives us hope. And the resurrection fuels and motivates our evangelism. Dear friends, we cannot waver on the doctrine of the resurrection because the salvation of sinners is at stake. Thus, the salvation of sinners motivates us to uphold the doctrine of the resurrection. You know, as I've been studying all of this and studying the resurrection over the course of the past few weeks, I've read some of the liberal scholars as they talk about, oh, well, you know, if we just do away with the, the doctrine of the resurrection, it's no big deal because all of his teachings are still there. But why follow his teachings? Why follow the teachings of Jesus Christ if we don't have future hope in Christ? That's foolishness. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, right? Because tomorrow we die. But because of the resurrection, we have hope. We have hope. And it's that hope that should fuel and fire our evangelism. We uphold the doctrine of the resurrection for the salvation of sinners. Second, we uphold the resurrection or the doctrine of the resurrection for the sanctification of the saints, for the sanctification of the saints. Moving on here in the next few verses, Paul kind of brings this out. He begins to ask some more rhetorical questions here. Looking at verses, verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Compromised doctrine leads to... Uh, Excuse me, I flipped my wrong notes here. I actually need to back up here. My goodness, I messed up good there. So we are motivated by the, we're motivated to uphold the doctrine of the resurrection because of the salvation of sinners and second, for the service of the saints. Sorry, for the service of the saints. Boy, that didn't make sense with that, reading that verse for that point. For the service of the saints. Serving Christ in the church, dear friends, is costly. Serving Christ and serving his church is very costly. 
And Paul brings that out here in two dimensions. Number one, serving the church is very costly. Serving the church, serving to, to build up the church in, in biblical doctrine is costly. It costs. Paul says there in, in verse 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, my, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. In other words, Paul says, For the church, I die every day. I give myself for the church. I, I, I sacrifice a piece of me, a part of me every day for the church. Paul's a shepherd of the church. And shepherding the church, shepherding God's flock is not always easy because sheep aren't warm and cuddly always, right? Sheep bite and kick and headbutt and do all kinds of nasty things sometimes. It hurts. Serving the church is, is a costly thing. Uh, even as a, a congregant, serving the church is a costly thing because you serve sinners, of which one you're, you're, you're then there with them, right? You, we're all sinners. Somebody said, well, I don't want to go to church because nothing down there but a bunch of hypocrites. Well, I'd say, well, come on and join us. You'll fit right in. Right? Because we're all sinners. That, that's all the church is. The church isn't. We think of the church as these, you know, they're supposed to be these saints. And, and we are saints in Christ. But only by the, the righteousness of Christ are we saints. We are still sinners. We mess up and we do ugly things to other people. We do that. And, and we, that, it, it's an ugly thing sometimes. Which means we've got to be very good at forgiving forgetting people's transgressions against us serving the church is costly it costs to be in fellowship with a, a, a group of believers it costs it costs time it costs energy it costs emotions at times but also taking the the gospel ministry out to the world that's costly the gospel ministry is costly paul says he he talks about uh, fighting beasts in Ephesus. Now, I don't think Paul is being literal here. Number one, Paul was a citizen, a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens wouldn't be sent into the Colosseum. He would have had to give up his Roman citizenship to be thrown into a Colosseum. Number two, if he had actually been sent into the Colosseum to fight beasts, he wouldn't have made it out alive. He would have died there. So I don't think Paul is talking literally here about fighting beasts but he is talking about fighting people in ephesus and acts it, it confirms that for us in acts it tells us that paul had a battle with the silversmith there in ephesus and they would have ripped him to shreds if they could have paul was in danger all the time because of the gospel ministry second corinthians eleven twenty three through 29 says uh, talking about the, the false prophets Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul knew suffering for the gospel ministry. And it's true for all Christians, maybe not to the extent that Paul saw that, but Jesus says, John 15, 20, Remember the words that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And again, Paul and Timothy reminds young Timothy, 2 Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If there's no resurrection, dear friends, there's no motivation to serve. If there's no resurrection, there's no motivation to serve. There's no hope of the resurrection. There's no reason to serve. As he says there, quoting Isaiah, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What's the purpose of it all? We serve because of the hope the future hope we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We serve because of the doctrine of the resurrection. We know that one day we will be resurrected and we will be, we will be with Jesus. And he will reward us for our labors in his name. We are motivated to serve because of the doctrine of the resurrection. So we must uphold the doctrine of the resurrection because of the it, the resurrection fuels our service to Christ and his church. So we are mo motivated to uphold the doctrine of the resurrection for the salvation of sinners, the service of the saints, and third now comes for the sanctification of the saints, for the sanctification of the saints. Compromised doctrine leads to compromised morality understand that compromised doctrine leads to compromised morality and paul brings that out in verses 33 and through 34 these last two verses here he he gives us as he, he's built into all us now he comes down and he he gives us three imperatives three commandments to to end on do not be deceived is number one. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your stupor. Wake up. Do not go on sinning. We see as we put all these together that that, that bad doctrine, compromised doctrine, leads to compromised morality. He says do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by bad influences. 
There's so many voices in our world that want us to compromise doctrine, compromise biblical doctrine, whether that be the doctrine of the resurrection or the doctrine of inerrancy or the doctrine of God or whatever. There's so many voices that want us to compromise. Boy, if you Christians would just compromise, we could get along, right? That's what the secular world says. If you'll just come over to our side of thinking, boy, things would go well for you. Everything would be just nice and smooth and great. If you just compromise. But it was Satan in the Garden of Eden that came to Adam and Eve and said, Did, did God really say did God really say? And did he really mean what he said? Oh, no, you're not going to die. God was just playing with you. You're not going to die. And see, that's what our world says. That's what the culture, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan's lead, that's what the culture is saying to us. Does the Bible really say? Does the Bible really say that homosexuality is a sin? Does the Bible really say that transgenderism is a sin? Does the Bible really say that adultery is a sin? I mean, really? I mean, can you really trust the Bible? Right? It's full of errors, isn't it? I mean, don't you see that? You can't trust the Bible. You've you got to compromise on this inerrancy thing. You've got to make all these compromises. Did God really say? Does the Bible really say? That's what the world wants the church to buy into. But bad doctrine, when we start taking away biblical doctrine, sound biblical doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of, uh, 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 of uh, the uh, Trinity, all of these. When we start taking away these doctrines, watering them down so that, that our culture isn't so bad, right? So that we can make these compromises that the culture wants us to compromise. When we start watering it down according to our culture... Bad doctrine leads to bad morality. And that's exactly what we're seeing across the West, across the America, across Europe, in what used to be Christian churches. They've compromised on doctrine. And their compromise on doctrine has led them accepting the sins of the world as normal. Compromised doctrine leads to compromised morality and compromised morality leads away from God. It leads away from God. Look at that last sentence there in this paragraph. For some have no knowledge of God. Some of you, he's talking to the Christians. He's talking to the church because they've, they've compromised on the doctrine of the resurrection. He says, for some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Some of you have no knowledge of God. 
You've not grown in your relationship to Christ. You've not grown in your relationship to God because you would rather compromise and live in the world than to follow God. Compromise leads away from God. It doesn't lead to God. It leads away from God. And churches become weaker and weaker and weaker when doctrines no longer preached and upheld in the church. Watered-down doctrine leads to watered-down Christians. If you want to grow in your sanctification, you want to grow in your holiness to God, you see, that's what He created us for. He saved us to sanctify us, to make us holy. If we want to grow in our relationship with God, then we've got to be serious about doctrine, biblical doctrine. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The sanctified, right? The holy shall behold his faith. Only the righteous stand before God. And the way to, of righteousness is conforming to God's word. Jesus prayed, in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. God, your word is truth. Now we're made righteous. We're made righteous in the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. It's only by our, God's grace through faith in Jesus we're made righteous. We're declared right before God. But then we also become righteous we grow in righteousness as we conform ourselves to God's word. Just as that verse read this morning, 1 John 3, 1 through 7. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, beloved. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, as Jesus, is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, no one who abides in Christ, no one who's baptized in Christ, immersed in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he, as he is righteous, God calls us to be righteous. To live for him, to grow in our relationship to him, to become more like Christ. But if we compromise doctrine, then we easily compromise righteousness. 
And when we compromise righteousness, we're not going to go to God. We're not going to grow in our relationship to God. Instead, we're going the other direction. We must uphold the doctrine of the resurrection for the sake of our own sanctification. Dear friends, I preach the way I preach because I'm concerned about your sanctification. I want you to grow in Christ, to know more about Christ. I want you to grow deeper in your knowledge of God. I don't want to water you down. So as a church, we uphold the doctrine of the resurrection. We uphold biblical doctrine across the board. We dig in deep into God's word and we, we mine the truth that are there. We're not just going to rake over it with our, our leaf raker, right? We're digging down into God's word. We're going to get out the backhoe and we're going to dig deep into God's word so that we grow in our relationship to Christ, that we grow in our righteousness. Becoming more like Him as we understand Him even better. Bad doctrine ruins the church. Bad doctrine ruins the church. So, dear friends, let us uphold biblical doctrine. We must be a people of God's Word. Always. Romans 12 Verses 1 through 2 tells us this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen to this. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world and the morality of this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Oh, dear friend, hold tight to biblical doctrine especially the resurrection, but all biblical doctrine, the deep biblical truths of Scripture, hold on to them and uphold them. Maintain them in your lives so that you're not conformed to the sinful world around us, but that you might be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Even now, oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and all that you have given us, Lord. We, we know so much about you. Yes, there's so much still yet to learn, but we know so much about you because you have revealed yourself in such a wonderful and mighty way. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine of the resurrection that in it we have the hope of eternal life, real, physical, eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, it is that hope that drives our evangelism. It's that hope that drives our service. It's that hope that drives our, our sanctification, our, our pursuit of holiness. We thank you for fueling us 
to know you and enjoy you all the more. Oh, Father, help us never to compromise. Though the world would love for us to compromise, life would be so much easier if we would only compromise. But, Lord, let us never compromise, for you are greater than this world. We surrender to you. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.